the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is brought to you today by friends and listeners like you. Because anytime you purchase one of our hand-designed shirts, magazines, or simply make a donation through the Ashtanga Dispatch website, you are helping to support this show. So thank you. And if you would like to make a contribution today, please go to ashtangadispatch.com and either click on the donation page or visit our shop. In fact, we just added another color of everyone's favorite Ashtanga Dispatch Sun Salutation shirt. Thank you again for all your love and support. And now, on to today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch. I'm Peg Mulqueen, your host, joined by Megan Powell. Hello. You might not know this, but usually when I do these interviews, Megan is right there in the room, as she was when we sat down with Richard. Did you ever think that that would be happening, that we'd be sitting in Richard Freeman's living room having a conversation? Never in a million years. Oh my God, I was pinching myself. I was, it was a little surreal, wasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, the whole day was a little surreal, starting off, well, it was also a little difficult. We had Indy with us, which I think you hear in the interview, (laughs) because Mary came home in the middle of us talking with Richard, and I don't know, she starts barking, so Indy made her voice known, but I think you stayed quiet through the interview. Yes. What did you think? Well, we just listened to it again. So one of the big themes was look again, and in this case, listen again. And it was really interesting to hear it again and get different information out of it this time. And I remember when I told you the first question that I had planned to ask Richard, and you said, please don't. (laughs) But I couldn't help myself, especially after what Ty Landrum had said to us that morning about the way Richard loves those kinds of questions. So the more you try to ask Richard what you should do, the more he like distances himself or the more he like confuses you with his answer. So the question was, What is the right name for the first posture of third series? Is it Vishwamitrasana or Vashtisthasana? And Richard responded exactly as Ty predicted he would. Tell you a story that will, you know, spin you out if you ask him a question like that. Of course, Richard didn't just spin out a story. He used it as an opportunity to open up a discussion about the difference between name and form, something that we get confused, not just with the first posture of third series. Anyway, I really did mean that first question as a joke, but it turned into a pretty fascinating conversation, don't you think? It definitely did. All right. Well, here it is. If you're wondering what the first posture of third series is called, because I know that question is just burning on your brain right now. (laughs) Here's Richard Freeman to tell us. You know, I learned from being all over India is that, you know, the the postures have different names all over the place, which of course they would. And, uh, you know, and because, you know, a lot of what was written down, you know, in the Middle Ages, there's some postures that are have a consistent name, but a lot of the more specialized postures, um, you know, people who they make up their own name for them. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the way a language evolved. You know, it's like uh, somebody made up a name, but then once everybody is using the name, then. You know, it's part of the public language. And so you want to be consistent if you want people to know what you're talking about. Hmm. And so in the uh, uh, third series, uh, the uh, first posture, Patavi Joyce, we call it uh, Vishwamritasana. 
but uh, many others that I've met called it Vasishtasana. And uh, Vasishta was the great sage who was the uh, guru of Rama, amongst other things. Uh, and Vishwamrita was early on, you know, he was a king, but uh, he was, he saw that the sage was walking around with what he thought was a magic staff. And uh, he wanted to have the same power as the sage. And so he wanted to have the same power as Vishnu, as Vasishta. And so he stole his staff thinking that's how he would get power. And ran away with it. I don't remember the details of the story, but it didn't work out very well for him. <laughs> and eventually he uh, got the teachings from uh, Vasishta and became also a great sage. But he had stolen Vasishta's famous staff and was running away with it. And so, in relation to that story, I imagine that the first posture, because the staff is straight up and down and you're kind of standing there, it's very, kind of, a, it's a triangle pose, but kind of done sideways. Uh, I, I like to think of a sishta, and Vishwamrita throws it over his shoulder, which is the next pose, we put your leg over your shoulder. And so he's running away with the staff. And, but the funny thing, or the silly thing is, is you know, either way it works pretty well. And um, to find out, you know, the actual history of the word is probably pretty difficult too, because you know, most of the people are long gone by now. And they didn't write write down every detail of their thoughts as they were thinking it out. So, so either works. And, um, so if somebody mentions due to this posture, or that posture, I'm always wondering which they mean. I just call it the first posture of third. <laughs> yeah. People know. Then they know what I mean. Yeah. We were well, laughing. They don't, you know. If they, <laughs> We were joking about it because you are one of those people. You're really hard to pin down on a on certain things, right or wrong. Yeah, like yeah, because it's sometimes more complex than that. Um, <laughs> and, and so the idea in yoga is you want to see um, on both a small scale and a large scale, and also a medium scale, all of the different things, circumstances that arise. You want to see them deeply as a, a composite or a, a, of many different factors and a deep background. And so they start to appear sacred to you. And so even like in language, uh, the phenomenon of language, like why is something called this, is a fascinating topic. And if you're a rare person who gets into something like that, uh, you can find it awesome fascinating and you will actually see the truth of impermanence by looking closely uh, and you will see Brahman that's the idea is whatever you're focusing your mind on if you focus through the practice of yoga you will see it as Brahman and then you'll be able to let go of it, it delightfully you know it's like ah and then it's basically you let go and, uh, anything. You know, it could be science, it could be topics that are, people find torturously boring, um, like, you know, people, people don't understand, like, you know, people are into to mathematics or biology, like how boring can that be, or economics, or, or the study of language, uh, philology, you know, like, whoa, that is dry stuff. And, most students would just die in the first semester of studying that. But if the teacher's good, the teacher is fascinated by it, and it's like a disease. Oh, like, wow, isn't that cool that that happened? And so I think a lot of yoga is, um, you know, you find someone who kind of knows the art of looking or the art of paying attention and they share that art. And so the, the student becomes infected by, oh, looking at the same thing that the, the, the yoga teacher is looking at. 
and they both forget themselves. And so it's not at all about the, the, the teacher or the student that's forgotten uh, if the subject is interesting. So it's just like you go to the university uh, and you sign up for a course in astronomy, okay, and the teacher happens to be really into it, and they are just awestruck by, you know, what they experience through the telescope and just thinking about the subject. And they don't really care about the fact that they are famous or not famous. And they share that with the students, so it's almost like they're looking in parallel, you know, out at the wonders of the universe, not thinking about them, their own power relationships or economic relationships or, you know, the teacher isn't thinking, well, where's my Nobel Prize? You know, I should have this. I'm going to kill my competitors, you know. But they want to share the, this beauty with uh, everybody. I feel like... And uh, that's, that's what it is, you know. Everybody. Even. Sometimes we lose that, though. You know, oh, like, yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, it, <laughs> instantly. I was. I came from an education background, and one of the things I loved about like a Montessori approach was that interest-based. But the way we have our school systems set up, it's very linear. It's very, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's. Yeah sometimes almost arbitrary the, the it is arbitrary the ages as to when you learn different things yeah. and and we put things kind of in boxes and try to systemize mm-hmm. it and so you lose touch with that yeah, and what's more important the box is the most important thing you know that you've got the grade you got the box check it off mm-hmm. your list and put it on your resume um and that's kind of sad. That is really sad. <laughs> this is really sad. <laughs> you had it. Humans do that. You know. We do that. Yeah. But we do that. It was what you said in the beginning. We use language so that we can understand what we're talking about. And we mm. are on the same page. But then that same language. A trap. Yeah. It's a trap. Yeah. Uh-huh. So a lot of yoga practice is... Um, where they say you, through discriminating awareness or just sharp intelligence, you're able to see that uh, the basic subject matter that you find interesting is actually different than the theories you make about it. So they say that the name of something and the form of something are actually two different things. But the mind gets them mixed very quickly because it needs to. It needs to make a symbol for something. And that way it can process the symbol really quickly mm-hmm. and it's the computer of, of the mind. Um, and then it forgets that the symbol and the form, or the, in Sanskrit they call the nama and the rupa, are not the same thing. So in you know, the map and the territory. So a lot of us, you know, we sit down and, well, you can't even get nice maps anymore. You know, paper maps where you got to look on your phone or something. (laughs) And it talks to you. Yeah, and your phone's talking to you. (laughs) Um, But the, and, you know, if you study the map and stuff, you know, of some place, you haven't been there. You know, you're, you're missing out on, you know, what is beyond mapping because it's, endlessly deep and refined but you know it's and you get this symbol and the thing being symbolized confused and you have to do that because that's how we think you know we place people we place things we place in categories and then we forget that there's more to them than just the cat and that way we tend then to ignore what's actually happening, which is much more fascinating. You spoke about something. I heard this from you. The idea of looking again. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, That's because, you know, when we all of a sudden we understand something, 
Um, and then at that point, then the ego goes, ah, oh, we got it. Got it. Don't have to sweat anymore. Move on. Yeah, I'll move on. I'll just check that off my list. Um, but what you got, or what you're taking away from it, is just one little point of view on something. And so look again. The, the, what you're, is, it's much deeper. Um, and so, of course, there's this famous story of someone wanting to know what supports the universe. This is, um, and, and so the sage, you know, they, a bunch of people go to the sage and someone asks the question, what's holding up this world? Because they maybe they look to a telescope and thought, wow, this is like a big ball, and then a bunch of what's happening, and uh, and so the the traditional teaching, well, there's a giant turtle that holds up the universe. You know, the really nice big giant turtle. You know, and the Mount Meru is resting on the back of the turtle, so it can spin and everything is cool. And you know, turtles are pretty slow, so don't worry, you can relax. And most people will go, ah, oh, there's an explanation for it. Actually, it's no explanation at all. But they feel secure and they relax, except for some little kid, you know, in the back of the room, perhaps they're a two-year-old or something, who always says, why? <laughs> you tell them and they want to know why. And that's They very, keep asking why. Yeah, and it's extremely deep, profound when they do that. If you really try to answer them honestly, and you don't lose your patience, which takes about two or three whys for most people. But, <laughs> you know, and it's usually like, you can say, oh, it's time to go to bed, and they go, why? And you say, because you need some sleep. Why? Why? Okay, and then you start, you start explaining, you know, the, the neuroscience, brain, and how, what happens in sleep. Keeps digging. And uh, then the, they want to know, well, why? And so then you have to, you, it goes very, very deep until they get you and you have no idea. And you can't answer it. You anymore. can't answer it, but you know sure it's enough. good for them. But you're, and, and so the, the little kid asks, well, what's holding up the turtle? Because okay, the turtle represents, you know, our metaphysical concept of God or the absolute or something. And uh, most people are just satisfied with the dogma or the, what was written on the tablets. Um, and, and so, well, there's a, another turtle under the turtle. There's a turtle holding up the turtle. And so, oh, and then everybody relaxes. Or they were a little scared for a moment. The kid goes, Except that little kid in the yeah, back of the room. It's holding up the turtle, it's holding up the turtle. And, you see what's happening. You get an, an infinite regress of turtles, which are supporting the, just the, and this is in the, the Kano Upanishad, and the mystery is like, what's happening right here with sense perception? Like, what is this? You know, what makes the mind go forth? Uh, what, you know, what's, who's seeing through the eye? What's hearing through the ear? You know, what's, what, who's breathing the breathing? You know, and it's all these questions that start the Upanishad. And then, uh, you know, and if you're with it, you, you'll see uh, any answer that's given just poses the same question again. So they say, well, there's, and then they say, well, there's the eye of your eyes, what's looking out of your eye. And people go, wow. Okay. And all of this is, you know, the doctrine of the Atman. Um, but then the little kid says, well, what's looking out of the eye of your eye? And the only question is that then you end up with an infinite chain of eyes where the, that la la chain never ends, you know. And so, but what's being ignored by the explanations is just the, the miracle of like what's right in your face right now, like, so if you're a little innocent kid, you know, you just go, wow. And, you know, just the fact of your face is, like, totally inexplicable. <laughs> it's, like, really weird, you know, like, time and space. And, and we... And so the idea in, in uh, 
yoga is that you keep, you get an answer, but you keep looking. And so this is called, uh, they call it vichara, which means to inquire. And so it's like asking why. And it's not like any, and you can think of brilliant answers that are only true from a certain context, a certain point of view. And you know, sometimes you need a specific answer within a specific context. You know, like, should I go to the hospital or not? You know, and you want to get the best answer you can. And you need that. And that's, the mind is being very, but, you know, you got to keep looking to see through, you know, to see the, uh, what, the miracle or the awesomeness or the infinity of the inconceivability of what's actually happening. And so, uh, and this is, you know, the practice of meditation. Because things are being presented to us, and then the, if the ego is a little dominant, you know, you just go, oh, that's just a presentation of the Atman, you know, and you, it's just like a, a theoretical, you're writing it off. You know. Oh yeah, it's all God, you know. But you're not, and then there's the term Anupasya, uh, which means you look and you look on, and you look more, and you look more, you look more. that's the process. And you just keep looking, and you're looking at the looking. And so this is what you do in meditation. And that, as soon as you sense that, you know, you see the mind for what it does, and then, you know, once you see what's happening as the mind, then you just let go of it. You go, you know, like, how does that, and you're there. How do you not go spiraling into space with all of that? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's a good question. You should look at that. Okay. Okay. Because basically, oh, I had that coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we can't wait. This, you know. And uh, um, yeah, and so there's this process of you know looking. Uh, eventually, in meditation, you start out looking at the body, which is infinitely deep and amazing, and then the feeling, sensations, or breath, and then eventually start looking at the mind, because it's also you know it's you start looking at questions, okay, why is there why, you know, and it gets a little silly and very quickly, you know there's something, you know the mind will do something very silly um, but the whole idea is that you're, you're, you're watching something with such attention that it's almost like the mind is a little bit shy to produce anything because you catch it just as it starts arising you start to see, oh, the, there's that confusion between the name or the idea, because the name is it's not like, you know, everything is like, and the, what's being described, there's that mistake being made. And it's an essential mistake. And there, um, so you'll see in Indian mythology, uh, both Hindu and Buddhist, um, mostly goddesses, um, walking around with uh, garlands of skulls. Yeah, it's like, whoa. I mean, if you think about that, that's kind of a... Morbid. Morbid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and, and, and some of them are, you know, there's a famous one called Chino Masta, and she, she's standing there, and she cut off her own head. Okay, now we're really morbid. <laughs> and for her own, she's holding it on a platter. But out of her neck, there are three streams rising, the central stream, and it's arcing down, and she's feeding her own head with the central stream, and then her two associates, who's, they just stopped, they were all hiking together, and they, her associates said, we're hungry, and she looks at them like, and she goes, and, and so the, the two, her two servants, her two lady servants are, drinking too from that fountain and she has a garland of skulls and so what they're doing is and what she does is they go around and they separate through discriminating awareness name and form and so there's no confusion anymore and 
so you start to see that everything is ultimately Brahman, or if you're a Buddhist, it's all emptiness. There's no separate self in anything. And in this way, enlightenment occurs. Pretty scary stuff. But she always has 50 heads, usually 50 heads on the garland to represent the 50 letters of the alphabet. So and then again, looking at language as the, not necessarily spoken language or written language, but uh, as the creative principle. It ultimately causes time and space and stories and lives and planets. It's essentially linguistic. And even on a not, it doesn't have to be on a personal. It's like, like DNA is information encoded. You know, in atomic different strata and stuff. So it, it all works like information systems. And so the languaging or information is what allows things to happen. I've always yeah. been pretty fascinated about the language from the different series, like how basic primary series begins with shapes that you can easily imagine, like a triangle, yeah, you know, and, nice. and they're very literal, right? And you can, and you're supposed to embody, but it gets a little bit more Funny. complex, right? There's... I mean, this this was just my own, yeah. like, looking at the language as it went, because we started off with the idea of mm-hmm. the first two postures of... The third series. Yeah, and there being sages, which are incredibly... Yeah. ...harder to relate to, whereas triangle I can easily... Yeah, and then once you know, like, about, say, Vasishta, because he was uh, really cool. He was a great, a great sage with a sense of humor also. And so Rama, his, one of his disciples was Rama, which is, you know, if you're going to get a student, you should get an enlightened student, much less work. Okay. Because, <laughs> <laughs> it's true, I mean, you know. And, uh, but there was a book uh, called the Yoga Vasishta, um, it was actually written in the, like the twelfth century, and probably in um, Kashmir. Um, but it's actually the sage of Asishta telling stories, and so probably part of the stories was the fact that it was written in Kashmir in the twelfth century. Okay, and so he's just telling wild stories. Uh, a lot of them really funny. Um, and all, you know, all about paradox. It's like M.C. Escher uh, goes back, you know, to this early Middle Ages <laughs> in India and tells wild stories within, inside of stories about impossible things. And uh, it's a delightful book. And you start to say, this guy is amazing, Vasishta. And of course he's mythological. He could have made up the story of himself, you know. And you start to see, well, you know, that things are contained within themselves, you know, in terms of mind. And, and so it's nice to know uh, something about mythology in dealing with the names of the postures. Because then you see how silly this posture actually is, you know. Like, and in. It's just one reference, you know, that's part of the, the lineage of teaching, is that there's all of this information encoded uh, from the greater history uh, that you will tap into, if you're interested, that really puts things in perspective. You know? um, like the intermediate series starts with Pashasana, the noose, and so this is Ganesha's noose. And uh, he is capturing this rather large, irritating mouse or rat. Um, <laughs> I think whose name was Crumcha. <laughs> That's the next posture. Oh, okay. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a long story that I know. Crumcha, I think he was a, a celestial angel, a Gandharva, who 
offended some sage, I forget which sage, and he got cursed um, to be born as a rat, you know, which is, and, the, he, and he, then he went to the sage and apologized terribly for, you know, he did something that was kind of obnoxious, you know, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and uh, the sage said, okay, well, set it up so that, uh, and this guy was a great devotee of Ganesha, the rat, and then he was sent to irritate this great sage, who was also a great devotee of Ganesha. And the sage you know, had a very simple life, and what the rat would do is the sage would be doing his laundry, which is basically just his uh, underwear, or his culpin, he didn't have much else because he lived in the forest. And the rat, every time he'd hang it on the clothesline, the rat would come and steal it, which is quite irritating. But in India, this kind of thing is easy to imagine. Um, and finally, he drove the guy nuts, and the guy just begged, you know, Ganesha, who was his, you know, his Ishtadevata, to help. This rat's crazy. And so Ganesha appeared, and uh, he, he saw the rat, and he lassoed the rat with the pasha, and pulled it over to him, and the rat was ecstatic, because this was his beloved, <laughs> his Ganesha, and Ganesh sat on him. And the rat was just like, and the rat begged to remain as his, his vehicle. And so Ganesh is always riding around on this mouse or rat, which you're supposed to kind of laugh at, because it's not like a lot of the other gods. They have, you know, Vishnu has Garuda, who's like a giant eagle. It's like, and Ganesh ends up riding around on the rat. But he's kind of the comedian amongst all of them. Ganesh is. You told a story at the confluence. Oh dear! Oh yeah. yeah which that. was yeah, and it it was. A beautiful illustration, well, of... Not to take things too literally, literally. particularly mythology, um, but to see what, you know, is being implied. And oftentimes the teaching is one of devotion or love or, you know, something very deep that really, when you try to explain it, you end up with turtles on turtles and, you know, all these silly things, but um, they teach, you know, what the whole point of it is. And, uh, and so the, the literalist, you know, so the ego tends to be a literalist, you know, I take this story as historical truth, you know, that Ganesh caught a rat. <laughs> okay. And, and you'll find that they're, you know, kind of fundamentalists in India who actually try to date the thing and say, you know, well, back in those days, you know, there were, you know, there were these <laughs> mythological characters actually running around, even though the stories are designed to make you see that, you know, they contradict each other all the time. And that, uh, and Ganesh represents, you know, the, the kind of the joke or the humor uh, of literalism. And so, and his brother, and I've since read that his, I used to think it was his older brother, but some stories say it's his younger brother, it was the god of war, Kartikeya. And so Kartikeya, you know, war, army, you know, tough guy, they have to be very literal. You know, fundamentalists, you know. Um, and so one day his two parents, Shiva and Shakti, you know, Shiva and Parvati. Uh, and a slightly different version, they had a bowl of sweets, lugdus, and they said to the two kids, the one who goes to all of the holy spots around India, you know, which are all these different mountaintops and famous temples and valleys, the one who can go to all the holy places first, gets this bowl of sweets. And so the Kartikeya, the god of war, just shoots out the door. And says, our, our little India dog is um, 
protecting your home. Oh, thank you. From, from Mary. From Mary. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, the... Uh, Kartikeya takes off and Ganesha stands up and he realizes the, uh, the fact that every point in the universe is sacred and they all contain one another. He gets up and walks around his parents and sits down, sticks out his hands and they have to give him the bowl of sweets. And many days later his brother comes rushing in and is down. You changed the story. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and those stories, because there's so many versions in different texts, that's why even for the fundamentalist, they get frustrated reading, you know, so maybe they'll choose one text they think, is, and they'll just not read the others because the version of the story will be different. And that's upsetting to them because maybe it's not a literal historical thing. Maybe it's... And then most of them are oral tradition, and so each, you know, when someone sits down to tell the story, they're often not reading it, and so they half forget what's happened, so they change it slightly. But, and that becomes, that's why we wrote it down, so you could get it right. So you, <laughs> so you didn't, mm -hmm. so it didn't have to filter through you. Mm. But is that yeah. the idea? Like, I mean, it, it's just yeah. so... It changes, yeah. It's fascinating that we almost impose different rules or ideas so that we can stop that from happening, you know, that, that yeah. change, right? I mean... Yeah. We, we want it to... Because we want to be stable and secure and not... Subject to impermanence. At least to think we, meaning our bodies or our souls, which is some idea we have of what we are, we want that to be reigning supreme. Um, and so we have to, you know, we, we have, in other words, we finally decide, you know, and so humans create religion and maybe we you know, choose our favorite hill around here. There's some nice hills here. And we say, well, that hill is the, the supreme hill. And so we, we make a temple on the hill, and the, we bow down, and we say, well, this temple contains the entire universe, which, in fact, it does. Uh, if you look really closely at the temple with an inquiring mind, you'll see that the entire universe is there. And uh, it's extremely inspirational, you know, when you're first setting it up. And then, you know, you, you stop looking. The ego takes over and you stop the process of inquiry. You stop looking. And then you decide, oh, look at all these poor other creatures around the planet. They need to come to our holy mountain and bow to our holy mountain because it's the true holy mountain. All of them are merely idolaters. So... You know, I've got the, the one true mantra, I've got the one true way, I've got the one true prophet, the one true best temple, the best mandala, the best yantra of all, the best scripture, the best method. And, um, okay, and you're, you're, you're asking for trouble when you do that. And so, eventually, you know, the outside world interferes with that. You know, you, you meet another group of people with another religion, another language, and it's that's why they're so scary. The, they're the other. And we usually demonize them, uh, maybe fight with them, maybe try to kill them, because they're, you know, shaking our universe. But then, eventually, uh, if they don't go away, you might hang out with them and actually communicate with them, you know, get to know the way they cook things, you know, and, and wow. <laughs> and for that moment of connection, uh, there's this 
great opening. It's like, wow, you've discovered these other beings. And they're just like you. You know, they have different food and different language, but they're just something about them is just like you. You recognize in their eye, you know, to be a different species even. You recognize, oh, there is me. And but that doesn't last that long usually. Before the mind ruins it. As far as being, you know, I want to consider myself open-minded, right? I mean, I want to, and I think a lot of us do, and yet I'm so surprised when something comes up that hits too close to home, yeah, and, and then I don't want it, and then I'm... Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, it catches me <laughs> off guard, because you're talking... You know, when we talk about different people, I'm like, oh, yeah. And I remember when we were in Mysore, somebody was talking about unschooling their children. And well, not, yeah, not sending them to... Right, at nothing. Yeah. And I, I remember sitting there, and I'm oh. so open-minded, and, I'm so, and, and I immediately went... That's probably a bad idea. No? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I would probably do that too. It, it was so, but I and I. It but took, I'd, I'd eventually get to know the people, see what they actually meant. It was really. It was a yeah, long process, awesome. though, of me then saying, "Why did I? What did that? What is that in me? What? Why did I get so upset about it?" But I immediately wanted to go into. That's wrong. You have to have some way to show people. You can't just let. I mean, and I didn't have an answer. It was a. Real, it was a good. Megan is always here. She's always the quiet member of these podcasts, but I always look at her because I'm always <laughs> sounding these things off of her. But it, it yeah. caused me a lot of distress, yeah. not to to have that brought up and to realize I was not open-minded about it at all. Like, I really... But you were... But you were sincere in trying to protect the children from what could be a big mistake. So you got to give yourself a little mercy there. It's a normal reaction. I would have that reaction, too, probably. Well, I'm glad to hear that, because but, but you were definitely... Because there are people, you know, they're anti-education, anti-science, um, there was an experiment a few hundred years ago in Europe. I don't know who did it, but they decided that if what happens to children is they start learning human language, because we we're talking about the you know language as being this, and so they cut these kids off from any language learning. Basically, if they leave the kids alone, they're isolated then they'll grow up as pure saints, because inside is just a pure soul. And so what they wound up with was some severely disabled and retarded, dysfunctional beings by not letting them learn language. It was a good theory. So they cut them off from science, you know, fake news. Um, <laughs> Uh, other other people's, you know, and, and you know that was horrible. And and we, of course, you know, in our culture, we, we want people to really know history. We want, to, you know, even though you can never know all of history, you know, you're just like. But any little scrap you get uh, is so valuable, you know, like to learn the history of. You know the United States, what actually was happening, and then the history of what was happening in the world. You know, in 1492, during the Spanish Inquisition, uh, you'll never know all the details. You know, most people are dead who were there, uh, <laughs> so you're not going to get. But you can learn a lot. There's a lot of information there, and uh, it's so helpful. Uh, but then there are people you know, who don't want to deny history, you know, they'll deny the Holocaust or something. And of course then we, we all know oh, it'll repeat itself because it's being denied. Um, and so your reaction, I think, is 
normal. But then again, you know, you got to keep, you keep, and that's the difficult thing is, well, you say, oh, they're wrong, you know, these idiots. And you're probably, it's a good chance you're right that they're wrong. But what happens then is we get emotional and we, we throw them out of our heart. And, you know, when we get angry, we basically pick someone up and, go, and toss them out of the heart. And uh, that, then, um, you know, you're not going to do what's, you're not going to be helpful to them. Because they're just making a typical, normal, stupid mistake. It was what you said, though, yeah. that made me. You, it was listening to you, and I kept hearing those words, look again. Mm. And so I immediately had that visceral, and I did look again. And as I continued through, I came home from that trip, mm-hmm. and I took my son out to dinner. And my son wasn't really that happy in university at that moment and he comes from a family we all have you know education is super important in our family and I mean I worked in education and and I it was a lot of looking but it was a lot of sitting with it was a lot of not knowing the answers and I it was a lot of me not knowing and I just realized that I was holding on to it really tightly this idea of education and how important it was and that I wasn't sure that I communicated with my son that it was okay to take some time away. If you take some time off, you might get a deeper education. Yeah. And that was... Camping or something. Right. Exactly. (laughs) The things that he loves and I hadn't realized. And it was a real turning point in our relationship. It was a huge turning point. Mm -hmm. So it had really nothing... It did have something to do. It was definitely triggered by something and my immediate reaction though was to shut down was to say mm-hmm. well that's bullshit <laughs> you can't do that to kids and and just be done you know mm-hmm. but yeah. i just kept hearing what you said and that was that look again and i just kept thinking why am mm-hmm. i so why am i so emotional why am i holding on so much to yeah. this idea of what i think is right yeah and it's a good idea um, but yeah, you got to look again. What is education? You know, um, what is education? So what we do is we then uh, get in the heat of the moment. Um, you know, it's more like our egos take over. Well, and then we start doing the damage, and then by basically, because there are a lot of people that are, you know not doing nice things. And it's not like you want to approve, but when you throw them out of your heart, in other words, you, you stop to see that, you stop seeing that they're suffering, uh, that they're beings just like you, and you could easily, and perhaps have, made the same mistakes a few times. Um, and then, so then you, you become overwhelmed with hatred, even though, you know, you're probably right about you know the damage they're doing, but then you can't really contribute to the solution um, because you no longer see the the situation deeply, and you no longer have compassion. And but then again, that's a huge ideal, you know, to have compassion for all beings, which it's easy for you know certain beings. Um, but then there are certain other beings who are nasty and duly harmful. That it's, you know, and you will eventually be in situations where you have to take a stand, you know, to maybe stop them. You know, and it could happen on the street. You know, you walk down the street with your baby and there's some like, uh, it doesn't have to be a human, it could be like a uh, squirrel is what's going to bite your baby, okay, and you go, no, and you know, you just go, whop, and you whop the squirrel squirrel away, okay, and uh, it doesn't mean you throw the squirrel outside your heart, although you might have at the time, 
But you've got to do that. You know, you're put in situations where you have to make a choice based on limited knowledge. You can't be, oh, there's a holy squirrel eating my little there's baby. There's a danger factor yeah. that has to be involved, right, in that walk. Yeah, oftentimes. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, something is... Immediate something, danger. Yeah, something is dangerous. and uh, Because otherwise, you know, it's... And a lot of people get confused about this when they at a certain stage in yoga practice or in which they say, well, all beings are sacred. Okay. And sentient beings anyway, you know. <laughs> and they're, But they don't see like out in the real world, you know, in nature, you're going to have to make a few choices. Fast, you know. Fast. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so... And uh, that's just nature, and uh, and then when you you see that function arise in yourself, you go, oh, I'm so bad because I was just filled with rage, you know, and because then you're judging the, you know, you're not seeing the the again, you're identifying with that as being you, and so it's not as functional. But if you can, you know, and. The Yoga Sutra talks about this, you know, that when you when you experience, um, or when you meet someone who is happy, or you meet the state of happiness, you should practice um, uh, maitri, or friendliness. And when you meet suffering, you practice compassion. And when you meet someone who is, um, uh, you know, very mystical, you know, who is full of love, you practice um, uh, buddhita, sympathetic joy. In other words, you don't practice envy. You're just like, wow, because they're like a beautiful being that's so helpful to others. But then when you meet the apunya, or the evil person, who actually creates harm, who's nasty, um, you practice opexionum, which just means giving him space. And it doesn't mean hatred space, but it means like you give him space so that at some point you can actually see them clearly until that day when compassion arises for them because they are suffering. And then you might know what's something skillful that you can contribute. And it might be like in an unfortunate situation where you have to help eliminate them because they're doing such harm. You know, so these dilemmas arise um, and are arising. You know, it's like, um, and so, you know, and yogis will take vows of nonviolence. Well, I'll never do anything violent, you know. But then they'll end up in a situation. Uh, where it'd be best if they did. Say, you know, there's, you're, you're there. Or they'll say, I'll never tell a lie. This is a classical one. And yet, you know, and you, you think of, well, there's some evil group of people chasing, you know, a group of children, and the children hide in your basement, and the evil group comes to you. And have you seen, you know, such and such? And you cannot tell a lie. Oh yeah, they're in the basement. And so they go down and grab the children and, you know, toss them in the fire. Okay. But I didn't tell a lie. I had to tell the truth. And, you know, like World War II was full of ethical dilemmas like that. And so eventually, you know, it's someone who's, well, I, you, you, I've taken a vow of nonviolence and yet I'm in a situation. Or I can, you know, this, say there's a psychopath that's going to destroy the world. And, you know, and you don't have to hate the guy. You just see, like, this guy is nuts. And you just go, you know, and you're the one who's in a position where you can uh, shut them down quickly. I think and most of us can listen to that. We can listen to that story and, you know, I don't think anybody would say, 
oh, they're down stairs. I mean, we would all go, oh yeah, that is one of those situations. Yeah, no problem, right? That's, yeah. but gosh, that isn't. It's hard for a fundamentalist it, to do that. <sighs> Sometimes the, 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 the overly pious religious person has trouble. Um, because they, they don't see the point of the practice, um, which is, you know, to eliminate suffering. But they're doing it for their own, you know, advancement in the karmic chain or something. Um, and the fact is, we're, we're, you know, those are extreme examples, you know, you think of like, you know, but these things happen, you know, frequently. You know, not with you know the most evil psychopaths in the world, but they happen just with, with some the silliest stuff. Yeah. They happen with really silly stuff, and within the yoga world, like I'm going to go right into. I mean, we could go into regular world, but it happens in the yoga world, like where we argue about a name or mm-hmm. whether the gaze is supposed to be here or there mm. or and it's is it down my nose or between it, my eyes yes it's a right. and it becomes a thing and when you step out of it and you look at it, it it's rather silly really silly yeah. <laughs> it's really funny but, yeah. but it becomes a very but it can be a very serious thing I feel really silly even talking about it right now but it's very serious (laughs) and oftentimes it's you know there's a somebody will will hear an instruction and they'll think that and this has happened in you know the Ashtanga Yoga lineage or lineages you know amongst many teachers and it happens all over is the, the teacher will give a specific instruction for a specific situation. Like maybe you should, you know, not twist your foot out that way. And, but students are just sitting there eagerly looking for, you know... The answer. The answer information. And they'll throw, oh, and so everyone, and I've seen it in, you know, other schools of practice, all of a sudden that's the way to do the posture. And it's different than what teacher said two months before, you know, and so the word goes out, that you now have to do it this way, okay, and actually it was an instruction meant for a specific individual who was having a specific problem, uh, <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's kind of silly, isn't it, and, but, you know, a lot of the main thrust of any of these lineages of teaching is the compassion and the humor that we would say Ganesha represents. But that's hard to transmit, particularly across cultures. Um, And so much easier just to memorize a formula. And historically, if you look at, you know, the... um, and, And I'm thinking of, you know, just the difference between the Sunni and Shia, you know, back at the... You know, when the Prophet Muhammad died, you know, the, those who were um, his nephew, Ali, you know, had been a great practitioner. And according to the Shias, he was, you know, like a, a, a total saint, you know. He was like the, the radiant one. And uh, so all the Shia, they traced their teachings back to Ali. But then the Sunnis, you know, there's more like a little politics forming. And they said, well, we can't, you know, take all of the political power and all of the teachings and the formulations of the Quran and just hand it over to these sentimentalist, you know, family people. And so they started killing each other, chopping off each other's heads uh, right away. You know, very violent. And it goes on today. <laughs> and uh, there have been, you know, in the history of almost every religion, there have been periods, you know, of some violence between 
ashrams. You know, people actually killing each other. As well as just speaking badly of each other. And it's like, wow, what, <laughs> what is going on here? It, it bothers me. I mean, it, it genuinely yeah. upsets me when I see the divisiveness that occurs over the silliest, silly things, yeah. the silly things. And I get worried mm-hmm. because I, maybe, it, maybe it's a process. Maybe it's part of the process. Maybe becoming very need like kids need to know the answers, and maybe that's a part of learning. Like you were saying before, with language, mm-hmm. there is a time you can't just not give them any language and and let them be. They have there is a time when you are learning form answers, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. But then there's a time when that needs to get broader, right? But I do feel like we're in an age right now where we're missing the broader... <laughs> missing the point? Yeah, like maybe it's always been this way. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah. But I, it's one of the reasons why I ask people like yeah. you, teachers like you, to come. And I do find that it's, it's teachers who have more years um, experience and more time with the practice mm-hmm. that seem to have those kind of, those bigger ideas and not saying that all the time but it it, it is a little epidemic I feel like mm-hmm. that right now yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah right now yeah <laughs> and, and maybe that's culturally maybe that's the cycle I don't know and I want to ask you yeah um yeah, why is it all clumping together? Yeah. Um, but it's just in the whole greater world at large, it's really like... It's everywhere. Clumping. And I think, you know, information is important. That's why, you know, the attempt to suppress the, the press, suppress the press, um, is a problem. It's a bad sign because that's, you know... If people have information, then they can really look at situations more deeply. But if they don't have any information, then they're going to believe anything. Um, and you can scare them and you know, make them riot in the streets. Um, and, but I think, you know, and if people are allowed to communicate, if they reach out and communicate, then they'll gradually exchange information and I think it's like a, a good medicine um, you know and it, it's almost like a, you know just awaken you know and this is why if you keep practicing in whatever the deeper meaning the word practice is uh, you're, you'll maintain more of an open mind and you'll look again and you'll inquire, keep inquiring. And then, you know, at some point you'll connect, you know, maybe, you can't count it, with the other, you know. The, and, uh, and the, you know, you can both start growing again. And so, can't give up. <laughs> you have to keep asking. Yeah, you gotta keep inquiring, keep practicing, um, and hope for the best. You know, it's, it's we don't know. I mean, you know, maybe uh, it's you know, at least in our own little worlds, we can keep communicating and inquiring. You know, really, you know, trying to trying to get to the the cause of the suffering. Because there's suffering arising, so we'll try to get to the cause of it. Um, and of course, there's the method for getting to the cause, which is practice. Uh, the Buddha called it, you know, the eight limbs. Uh, a funny correspondence to the word Ashtanga. 
although the, the, the Buddhist limbs are slightly different, they're still, they're similar in that they incorporate all the different facets of your life. Um, so that's an interesting I, thing. I, I loved that idea of look again, because I, I do feel like right now we're in a place where we almost discourage that, yeah. that not, if you look again, then you're, don't have faith. Or you, yeah. right? You, yeah. the the tribe, the group doesn't yeah. want you to keep looking. Yeah. The political party doesn't want, want you to, you to keep the, looking. The party line, yeah, which is a lack of faith. To 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 buy a party line, it means you don't have means that you're uncomfortable with the depth of reality, with the state of not knowing, of being awestruck by how everything is interconnected. You can't trust that, so you've got to buy a, the party. But the thing is, if you communicate with, somehow, through uh, even those who are, you know, staunchly defending something, or trying to push it down your throat, you know, they're, you're there. Uh, if you communicate with them, you, you might get them to look again. You know, or at least slightly reconsider their assumptions. Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> I like that. I, I'll go with that piece of hope right there. That mm -hmm. sounds lovely. And I do appreciate, I know that you sitting down with us today oh. has been, you know, you just got done a big long week of an intensive training and making this space for us this weekend has been lovely. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast was edited and hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen, along with Megan Powell. The show is produced by Chris Lucas. We will be back next month with our interview with Mary Taylor. And it's a fantastic one. You're really going to enjoy it. So again, thank you for listening. And you'll hear from us again next month.